0: This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Our conference this year is entitled Turning Points, New Directions in Refugee Protection. Perhaps it should have been punctuated with a question mark at the end rather than a full stop as it remains very much an open question in quite which directions we are moving. Last month, Filippo Grandi, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, lamented that while the demands on his organisation had never been greater, its space to find solutions had perhaps never been smaller. COVID, climate, conflict, and now a cost-of-living crisis, he said, are causing ever more hardship compelling people to flee. Globally, a staggering one in 78 people has been forced to flee. Across Africa, the Middle East, Asia, the Americas, and Europe, there are now over 100 million refugees and internally displaced people. Yet many UNHCR operations are severely under-resourced with funding the lowest it's ever been in countries neighboring Syria such as Lebanon and Jordan, which host the largest number of refugees per capita, and in Turkey, which is the largest host country in the world. Resettlement hasn't recovered from its record pandemic low in 2020, when only some 23,000 refugees were resettled, compared to almost three times that number in 2019, and close to 190,000 people in 2016. From the conflict in Ukraine through to COVID-19 lockdowns and border closures, the past three years have seen major changes in the way protection and assistance are delivered. As this conference will explore through panels focusing on Ukraine, COVID, on refugee participation, the public discourse on asylum and externalization practices. Some of these transformations have been positive while others have undermined the international protection regime and caused untold damage to individual men, women, and children seeking asylum. Has COVID shifted the bar for keeping people out? Or has the general public had enough of demonizing refugees, voting out the likes of Trump, Bolsonaro, and Morrison? Will the cost of increasingly elaborate schemes to and to harden borders prove too wasteful for the public purse, if not the public conscience. Given the Global North's response to refugees coming from Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Myanmar, Central America and Africa, how do we explain the embrace of Ukrainians? In sum, how are we to assess the Janus-based approach to refugee protection? In March this year, Europe opened its doors to millions of Ukrainians, providing them with immediate protection by activating the Temporary Protection Directive. This was quite extraordinary, especially since just two years earlier, the directive had been slated for repeal. It had never been used, not even in 2015 or 2016, when Europe faced the so-called Syrian refugee crisis. No one thought Europe had the political will to trigger it. Australia, too, showed surprising generosity to people escaping conflict in Ukraine by offering immediate visa extensions as well as a temporary three-year humanitarian concern visa to anyone who wanted to stay. With the stroke of a pen, protection was available. This wasn't about law or process, but rather a political decision to extend protection to people fleeing an objectively horrifying situation. It was the right thing to do. But this approach generally hasn't been taken in other objectively horrifying situations. The Taliban resurgence in August 2021 led to millions seeking to leave the country. Distressing images of shambolic scenes at Kabul airport were beamed around the world, catalyzing public advocacy and support for those seeking to leave. But on the whole, governments were apparently unmoved slow to implement protection pathways, despite the obvious need and continued advocacy by the Afghan community, by refugee lawyers, experts, and civil society organisations. For instance, while Australia created additional places for Afghans in our humanitarian program, the numbers were a drop in the ocean. The government has been extremely slow to assist family members of Afghans already here and others at obvious risk, including interpreters, and other people who assisted Australian troops during the war in Afghanistan. Likewise, in the United States, Afghans who were evacuated remain in limbo without any assurances that they'll be able to remain once their temporary emergency stay ends next year. One US commentator has framed this as an issue of national security, arguing that in future conflicts, why would anyone risk their lives by serving alongside US soldiers? or providing critical translation services if the United States can't keep its promise when it departs. So why then this difference? Well, One idea that's been circulating is that Ukrainians are real refugees fleeing political persecution, while people seeking asylum from Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, for instance, are simply economic migrants seeking a better life. The European Union's own recognition rates show just how flawed this notion is, with between 80 and 90 per cent of asylum seekers from Eritrea, Yemen and Afghanistan receiving protection last year. So maybe it's because, in the words of one British politician, Ukrainians seem so like us. That is what makes it so shocking, he said. Ukraine is a European country. Its people watch Netflix and have Instagram accounts. The High Commissioner for Refugees put it as bluntly as anyone when he said that the difference is nothing but pure racism. In an article examining when differentiating between refugees amounts to unlawful discrimination, Catherine Costello and Michelle Foster note that perhaps the most remarkable thing in the Ukraine context was, and I quote, the immediate cries of discrimination given that the global refugee regime has long been pervaded by stark differences in treatment on grounds of nationality and deeply racialised practices. As they rightly point out, while not all differentiation is discrimination, the crucial issue is to sort out when it's justified as a matter of law and when it's not. And what they do note is that in contrast to many other asylum seekers, The cumulative effect of the legal regime that has emerged to respond to those fleeing Ukraine places them at considerable advantage when compared to others seeking protection. And they describe this as not merely a dual standard, but a dual system. In his recent book, Undesirable Immigrants, US scholar Andrew Rosenberg argues that whereas the immigration laws of previous eras were blatantly discriminatory, such as the White Australia policy, Such factors are now more concealed and therefore more pernicious. If laws on their face apply equally to all, then how can they be racist? Rosenberg says that the problem is a structural one and that the policies behind supposedly colourblind laws can make them just as discriminatory in practice as their predecessors. Achilles Scordus argues, and I quote, that racist and discriminatory motives of actors are not easily transformed into legal institutional racism, which is defined by legally sanctioned discriminatory provisions and practices. And I think that's Rosenberg's point. It's the seemingly innocuous neutrality or objectivity of the law, which makes it so insidious. As Filippo Grandi, the High Commissioner observed, The Ukrainian crisis debunked so many myths that we've heard over the years from some politicians about anti-refugee sentiments and public opinion. Whereas only last year, he said, Europe was seemingly unable to deal with a few dozen people being disembarked from a boat, suddenly 7 million were received with dignity and protected appropriately. Here, having a legal instrument in place, the Temporary Protection Directive, showed that a clear process A nimble system and a plan are precisely the tools needed to ensure that large numbers of arrivals do not become overwhelming and can be managed. By contrast, what has undermined public confidence in asylum in recent years has been the deliberately disorganised responses from some countries and the rhetoric that we are in chaos. That is why, the proliferation of externalization practices or offshore processing is not only abhorrent, but also counterintuitive. And it has been argued that the relative generosity shown to Ukrainians is in fact fueling this push in some quarters. A few years back, I was asked to review a draft media release that referred to governments increasing interest in extraterrestrial processing. Were such a thing possible? I have no doubt that it would be in state's arsenal of draconian responses. It's particularly jarring to see the United Kingdom and Denmark trying to institutionalize extraterritorial approaches to asylum just at the same moment as we've seen the response to Ukraine which has reinforced the right to seek asylum and the principle of non-refoulement as the bedrocks of the international protection regime. Notwithstanding Europe's strong human rights law frameworks and institutions, the UK and Denmark have pushed ahead. As we saw a few months ago, urgent legal action saw the suspension of deportation flights to Rwanda. And in October, the airline that had been contracted to carry out the removals withdrew from the deal. When asked how it now intended to remove people, the UK Home Office said it would not comment on operational matters, a line straight out of the Australian playbook. It seems unfathomable that Australia's approach is being copied, given its devastating personal cost for those subjected to it, and the exorbitant financial cost to the taxpayer, calculated at some $9.5 billion since 2013. Or maybe... The British Parliament assumed that evidence given by former Australian ministers about our experience of offshore processing would be based on fact, rather than laced with misinformation and inaccuracies. As my colleague at the Caldor Centre, Madeleine Gleeson, has written, claims that offshore processing was a success in stopping boat arrivals, belie the government's own data and are not supported by any independent source. That is why the Caldor Centre sought to correct the record by furnishing the British Parliament with a point-by-point rebuttal of that testimony. As Australia's decades-long pursuit of offshore processing has made all too clear, unilateral responses undermine not only central tenets of the legal regime, but also collective responsibility sharing. Far from solving displacement, Australia has shifted the burden to countries with far fewer resources and has had enormous difficulties in finding partners in the Global North to provide resettlement options, because this is a problem of Australia's own making and legally Australia's responsibility. Having access to territory is central to international protection and attaining rights. And yet we continue to see people being prevented from crossing borders in all parts of the world. At some point during the first two years of the pandemic, 195 countries closed their borders fully or partially, and many made no exceptions for people seeking asylum. This figure has now dropped to some 20 countries where access is either limited or denied, contrary to international law. Of course, border closures didn't mean that people stopped needing protection, and there was a reported rise in the number of people being trafficked and smuggled. While government's actions in the initial stage of the COVID outbreak were extreme, blocking access to territory has been a longstanding feature of Global North asylum policies since long before the pandemic. This year, as in many previous years, border closures, arbitrary expulsions and violent pushbacks on land and at sea have, um, have among other measures, denied protection to people in need, putting them at risk of reform. More. The Caldor Center's Deputy Director, Daniel Geselbash, has described this as being like a competition in which states try to outdo each other in a race to the bottom, lest they face an influx of asylum seekers if they don't match or outdo restrictive policies in other jurisdictions. COVID accelerated the process and provided a cover. For instance, on the southern border of the United States, Over 1.8 million expulsions have been carried out since March 2020 under the Title 42 Pandemic Authority. This gifted former President Trump the ability to effectively shut the border on health grounds with no exemption for people seeking asylum. While the Biden administration had planned to terminate Title 42 in May this year, it was blocked by a federal court in Louisiana and so remains in effect. We might have thought that experiences of lockdown, travel restrictions and so on would have given people a glimpse into the daily privations of many displaced people, separated indefinitely from family, unable to move about freely, unable to work or associate with others. But this seems to have been quickly forgotten as vaccine privileged countries have largely resumed a business as usual approach. While many countries in the Global North are acting as though the pandemic is over, it is still having dire consequences for many, especially for refugees and others in situations of vulnerability. It has affected displaced people disproportionately and continues to do so, including through discriminatory restrictions on movement, unemployment, on disrupted education, food insecurity, expulsions, and barriers to accessing vaccines and medical treatment. We've even started to see protection claims being made on the basis of COVID-19 itself, including here in Australia and in New Zealand. The New Zealand cases are particularly interesting because unlike in Australia, the New Zealand Immigration and Protection Tribunal can halt removal on humanitarian grounds if it finds that exceptional circumstances exist. So while no refugee claims have been successful there on the grounds of COVID, a number of people have been permitted to stay in New Zealand because of exceptional humanitarian reasons linked to COVID. So for example, some returns to India and Malaysia were prevented. In Germany, a court found that the serious deterioration in economic and humanitarian conditions in Afghanistan since the onset of COVID meant that even an able-bodied single man could not legally satisfy his most basic needs for food, shelter and hygiene unless he had significant financial means or a strong social or family support network. And as such, his removal was prevented because there was a real risk of inhuman or degrading treatment. COVID has also shone a spotlight on the crucial work of refugee communities and refugee led organisations all over the world. Often. This was work that they'd been doing quietly for many, many years. But the departure of international staff meant that it was finally seen more widely. Refugee communities and organisations pivoted to provide frontline care. In Iran, for instance, the refugee community mobilised to support vulnerable families, to hand-sew masks, disseminate public health information and distribute relief packages to those most in need. The main challenge was finding sufficient resources to meet the scale of that need. Refugee-led protection has long been a key component of international protection. A survey of refugees in Uganda and Kenya found that in an emergency, over 90% said that they would first turn to community level support rather than an international organization or a large NGO. But refugee organisations typically lack funding and recognition, almost never being given implementing partner status or operational partner status by UN organisations. A multi-country and multi-stakeholder evaluation of the protection of refugee rights during the pandemic highlighted the significant contribution made by refugees and refugee-led organisations, but tellingly said that the lack of data collected at the global level meant it was impossible in any genuine sense to quantify the collective contribution. This is a huge gap and a missed opportunity to shape sustainable, appropriate responses. The 2018 Global Compact on Refugees recognised that responses are most effective when they actively and meaningfully engage those they are intended to protect and assist. And refugees themselves say that their own organisations, networks and advocates bring vital and distinct perspectives and ideas to policy discussions. Yet their sidelining from planning and programming means that all too often, well and valuable resources are mis-targeted. For instance, panellists on a round table about refugee protection in Malaysia during COVID recounted instances of refugees receiving food donations that they either didn't need or that they didn't know how to cook, thus undermining the effectiveness of food distributions. At a structural level, it means that refugees are being shut out of decision-making processes on matters that affect their lives at all levels. That is why a coalition of refugee-led organisations, the Global Refugee-Led Network, is systematically advocating to increase refugee participation in shaping policy, to build refugee capacity to engage locally, nationally, regionally, and globally, and to strategically advocate for and promote inclusive human rights approaches to displacement. With the conflict in Ukraine, we've seen just how powerfully refugees themselves can shape understandings and public opinion. This is also the case in Australia, where the highly organised, networked and social media savvy Afghan community has been key in bringing personal stories and policy proposals to the fore. Psychology professor Manos Bakiris has demonstrated that people in the general public respond best when they can see and hear from affected individuals. In his experiments, participants who were shown photos of large groups of refugees, were less likely to support pro-refugee policies than when they were shown images of smaller groups where individuals could be identified. Recognising refugees as individuals, and getting to know them as neighbours, colleagues and friends can be transformative for how people understand and respond to refugees and to refugee policy. So what are we to conclude? What does all this mean for international refugee law? On the one hand, responses to Ukraine have reaffirmed and upheld long standing core protection principles. Ukrainians have not been sent back to a real risk of persecution or serious harm and have been granted immediate protection with the right to work, to go to school, to receive medical care, and so on. Flexible processes have been adopted to facilitate this often bypassing the need for individual status determination given the large numbers of people fleeing and the objective circumstances that establish a prima facie case for refugee protection. On the other hand, Europe's swift response for European refugees fits in stark contrast to its regional inertia for those fleeing Syria back in 2015 and 2016, with notable exceptions, of course, including the response by Germany under Angela Merkel, for which she was honoured this year with UNHCR's Nansen Refugee Award. That was the moment when many people thought the temporary protection directive would first be activated. Yet Europe as a region failed to act collectively in response to an equally obvious humanitarian crisis. So does the difference in behaviour reinforce the erroneous notion that international protection is dependent on geographical proximity, that Europe takes responsibility for European refugees, but that Africa therefore must do the same for African refugees and so on. We know of course that most refugees take shelter in neighboring countries, but this is also because of limited durable solutions elsewhere. The Global North's policies of containment constantly seek to push back responsibility and with fewer than 1% of refugees ever likely to be resettled, the clear message is that you shelter close to home. But this is not what international law says. Everyone has the right to seek asylum, and there are no geographical limits on where one does so. The other concerning element of the Ukraine response is a temporal one. Is temporary protection enough? What happens if it's not safe to return after one? two or three years, then what? The Refugee Convention envisages that people will retain refugee status until a permanent, durable solution is forthcoming. Protection should not be contingent on periodic assessments of conditions back home, which can keep people in a psychological and legal limbo. Rather, the Refugee Convention assumes that refugees will either be able to return home safely once a conflict ends or a persecutory regime falls, or that they will be able to integrate into the country where they are living or be permitted to resettle elsewhere. Some Ukrainians will seek to return home as soon as they feel it's safe enough to do so. As one young mother said, I miss Ukraine, I miss my relatives, I miss my husband. I hope this war will end and we can go again to Ukraine because I find Australia very great, a very nice country, but Ukraine is my home. Others make different calculations. One older Ukrainian woman said, at my age, I'm not physically capable of rebuilding a country. I would rather stay with my family here in Australia and watch my granddaughters grow. Of course, all of this is happening at a time when we are still in the throes of a global pandemic whose cascading effects continue to exacerbate economic pressures, mental health, social connection, and disasters which are ravaging every part of the globe. When xenophobic political rhetoric is thrown into the mix and foreigners blamed for every social or financial ill, it's perhaps little wonder that some people want to pull up the drawbridge. Well, that was Brexit and look how that's worked out. Time and again, we have seen that pushing away refugees and punishing asylum seekers is much more costly than a well-managed, principled approach. That is why now more than ever, it's essential to to shape a long-term vision for refugee policy. One that in the words of Australia's Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, promotes unity and optimism, not fear and division with global displacement at a record high, fueled by conflict, disasters, persecution, and human rights violations. We have a moral and a legal duty to do our bit. The Caldor Centre's Principles for Australian Refugee Policy provide a principled, pragmatic, and evidence-based foundation for a refreshed approach. Drawing on concrete examples from overseas and from Australia's own history, The principles show how and why we can create a manageable system that simultaneously benefits refugees, people seeking asylum, and the community at large. In a nutshell, they explain why we need to comply with our international legal commitments and ensure that people are not sent back to a real risk of persecution or other serious harm. Why we must provide fair and humane reception conditions. Why we must give people a fair hearing, keep families together and safeguard the best interests of children. Why we should create additional safe and lawful pathways to protection. Why we could become a global and regional leader on protection again. And why we must invest in refugees for long-term success. As the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi has observed, it is the management or operationalization of asylum that needs reform, and not the principle of asylum itself.